This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This uh, laptop, I tell you what, this is called the laptop from hell. The only laptop that was almost as good, maybe worse, was the laptop of Anthony Weiner. You remember that? Ding, 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 ding. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to Episode 5 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill, maybe less extreme, and generally less angry conversation. And while it got a fair amount of coverage, I didn't get a chance to really go into it much on the Saturday show that I do, The Middle, which is on 77 WABC Radio from two to three on Saturdays. Nancy Pelosi stepped down from her role that she has held, I guess since 2002, as the leader of the Democratic Party. I mentioned that I was part of her original whip team when she ran for whip of the Democratic Caucus in 2001. I arrived in 1999 and then was one of her organizing whips when she ran for leader in 2002. And she has arguably been the I don't know. I guess it's fair to say, I mean, no one's disputed it yet, the most influential woman in American politics in our history, being third in line to the White House and all. But I think that a lot of Republicans, and Kevin McCarthy may learn this if he's lucky enough to be elected speaker in January, a remarkable tactician. And I know that she is something of a, a cartoon caricature for Republicans, but the fact of the matter is that her skill as speaker you know, frankly, she had caucuses that were usually fairly close in margin in terms of how many votes that she had to spare on each vote, keeping herding the cats of the Democratic Party. And she was remarkably good at it. And she kept in mind kind of the base values that she had. But she also was very good at communicating with individual members, understanding how they all thought, and kind of allowing the caucus to do its will. And let's remember something about speakers, and maybe maybe you don't know this, but they have very little actual authority, very little actual way to punish you, for example, if you did something wrong. Like the idea of like, you know, Nancy made you do it is really not a thing. Now, there are some incentives to being on her good side. You know, when you first get to Congress, you get your committee assignments. And if you want to jump from a more minor committee to a major one, it's good to have her support because something called the Steering and Policy Committee, which she has some sway over. But really, that's about it. There's like no power to take away your office or give you a less desirable one or cut your budget in any way. So if you're going to be a good speaker, you have to use more gentle persuasion. And let me tell you a story that reflects the way she operated. In 2009, I had decided not to run for mayor because I wanted to be in Washington for the Obama years and work on health care. And I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee. I'd kind of been waiting for this opportunity to be involved in kind of a big major piece of legislation the entire time I'd been in Congress. And, and it was a tough decision not to run for mayor that year. But I really threw myself into healthcare. Many people around the country first got to know me through that issue. And there was all this chanting, you know, read the bill, read the bill. I was actually in the room when the bill was being written, 2,000 some odd pages. 
And as you know, there was this whole talk, you know, Obama was pushing socialized medicine when in fact it was the other way around. He was pushing for incentives to go to private insurance companies that he had decided not to go in the way that some of us wanted to go. In fact, I thought I had a better idea, which is something akin to Medicare for all Americans. And not to get bogged down on the specifics of that, basically the idea that Medicare is a very popular, well-run program with about 1% overhead that seniors say overwhelmingly they're very, very happy with and extend that gradually to all Americans rather than reinventing the wheel. So I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee and the way the process works is that in order for a bill to make it to the floor, first it goes to the committees and we kind of draft it by offering amendments, making changes. And then when it goes to the floor, there's other chances, some final chances to make some changes. But usually that's just offering an alternative to what's ever up. That's like where, where the minority party gets a chance to offer their own vision, period. So we're in committee writing this bill and it's getting into the late throes of this. And I had decided that I was going to try to substitute for what was now we call Obamacare. I was going to propose something akin to Medicare for all Americans. And I didn't have all of the support on the Democratic side. There were a lot of Democrats who didn't support that. And none of the Republicans did. But the Republicans figured out quickly that if they all voted yes, what would go to the floor is the thing that they said they didn't want, which was more a version of Medicare for all, more of a single payer system. And I figured this math was not bad for me and not bad for the country. Because I thought that finally it would get us an opportunity to try this, doing this the right way, rather than kind of jerry-rig this insurer system. And I was prepared to offer my amendment. And it wasn't the Republicans that were freaked out about this. It was really the Democrats, my leadership. And Nancy Pelosi came to me and said, please don't offer this amendment. And I said, listen, I have made a pledge to my constituents and to activists all around the country that given an opportunity to offer this, I would. She says, I understand that. She said, I can't let you betray that promise that you gave to your constituents. That's one thing about Nancy. She would never say, choose you know, your party over your district. And she said, what I will do is I will give you a vote on the floor on this issue. And that was, to me, almost even better. And I agreed. The bill went on to get passed as Obamacare as we kind of know it. But when it comes to the floor, and there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy around the country knowing that this promise had been made, she had put it in writing. She had made a statement that I've offered Anthony Weiner this opportunity, blah, 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 because I said, I have to make it clear. I'm not just going into, you know, I'm not just forgetting about this. It comes to the floor, and it's time for me to offer my amendment. Medicare for all, the first time it was going to be, a single-payer system was going to be offered on the floor of Congress. It was my signature issue, and I'm ready to go. And she takes me aside and says, listen, I made this assurance to you that you can offer this amendment, and you can. However, I want to tell you about five or six members of your caucus, other Democrats, for whom this vote is going to be very, very difficult, in that they have publicly stated that they support the idea of single-payer health care. But if you bring it up and make them vote on it, and they have to decide to either vote in favor of this thing, which they believe in, and give their opponents a really big issue to be able to say that they, you know, they are crazy left-wingers, or they can then vote no and betray what they have said all along to make themselves, to make it safer for them politically. You are putting them in a very, very difficult spot. But you decide what you think is right, and you do what you think is the right thing. So the footnote to this story is that 
after seeing and hearing about these other members and then going and visiting with some of them and understanding the position it would put them in and also understanding that probably what would happen on the floor is a fair number of Democrats and all the Republicans would vote against this, I decided not to offer the amendment. And I took a lot of heat for it among my supporters and took some heat for it. And now I knew that it would not ultimately wind up becoming law. So it was really just a question of whether I was going to make this public statement with this amendment. So what does this tell you about Nancy Pelosi? Nancy understood that to me, you know, not wanting to put my colleagues that I know and I care about in a really uncomfortable position, knowing that she knew that I knew that ultimately this was about making a political statement. And so I'd be putting them in a difficult spot just to make a political statement. Nancy understood that what to motivate me was not a threat, was not to take away a a promise that she had made because she was always good to her word, but to make me understand the parameters and the ramifications of what I was about to do. And, And that's the way she led for years and years, is with each individual member understanding what made them tick and talking to them in a way that ultimately influenced them. But a couple of things she never did, she, as I mentioned earlier in this story, she would never say, do something you don't believe in or that you think that you're, you've promised your district something else, you know. And she also was not someone who made big threats. She said, you know, and part of it was, I think she understood that for me, I felt very strongly that this was the right thing for the country. And it would be a very different story if it could get passed, ultimately. It wasn't going to get passed in the Senate. Even if the Republicans decided to try to let it pass, it wasn't going to pass in the Senate. So, and she also knew that I was always someone that always preferred to not let the half a loaf be the enemy of, what's the expression? Not that the perfect be the enemy of the good. She understood how I ticked. Now, fast forward to when it was, I was trying to figure out whether I was going to resign when I had my famous Twitter scandal. And she never once said, you've got to quit. But she did say, here's what's going on. Here's the impact it's having on the rest of the caucus. Here's the impact it's having on our ability to get things done. And that was influential as well. It's also influential that they threatened to investigate me. And I had in the ethics committee and that it probably would cost me millions of dollars to defend myself and that I had to look out for my family and other reasons. I'll go into that in a future podcast. But that brings us, Nancy Pelosi brings us to the number of the week. And it is 50, $50 million this cycle by Republican candidates and PACs associated with Republican candidates on advertisements that focused on Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Not just in San Francisco, but all around the country. Anti-Nancy Pelosi ads, you know, voted with Pelosi 96% of the time. That had succeeded in making her a boogeyman to some people. And when you get elected on that message, how do you govern when she is no longer the speaker? And we got that answer earlier in the week, but this montage explains where that answer came from. When he realized that his laptop from hell was missing (laughs) and that they found it, but the fake news didn't even want a great book on that was done. The fake news didn't even want to talk about it. Media complex in this country uh, helped cover up evidence that clearly, I mean, this is this was major evidence that sat on that laptop. The FBI had it for over a year. Nothing was done with it. I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee content from files from and copies from the Hunter Biden laptop. The presidential election, I mean, the laptop was real. The eyewitness, Tony Bobolinsky, was a real person. The emails, in fact, were real evidence, real documents. The only thing fake was the news. This uh, laptop, I tell you what, this is called the laptop from hell. The only laptop that was almost as good 
maybe worse, was the laptop of Anthony Weiner. Do you remember that? Ding, 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 ding. By the way, I, don't, I still to this day don't know what the ding, ding, ding was about, but that montage was all from earlier. That's not from this week, but the first, the announcement, and I mentioned this on the show this weekend, the first press conference announcing what the new Congress was going to do was about having hearings into Hunter Biden. And, you know, why do I go from Nancy Pelosi to this story? Because Nancy Pelosi, when you run against Nancy Pelosi, it does raise a lot of questions like, okay, that's what you're against. Now Nancy Pelosi is gone. It doesn't leave you with much of a governing vision. So they come out, the first thing they're going to do is Hunter Biden. And I have to admit this to you. I have almost as much as an obsession with this Hunter Biden laptop story as many on the right do, is that montage indicated. I mean, obviously for a different reason. I'm fascinated the way issues like this become that smart political people making smart calculations, influenced by the media, decide that an issue is one that they're going to latch onto. And this did have some of the ingredients of like a mystery, a cover-up and everything else. But and I think it was like the very first, one of my very first episodes I did of the radio show, I think it was episode two, I went into this because I was fascinated by the idea that you could read very little. I mean, it was covered. I mean, this notion that it wasn't covered is mythology. There are articles in every major newspaper about the Hunter Biden laptop in October of 2016. I'm sorry, October of 2020. Like this whole idea that no one was talking about it. But there was a different, like it was one side, you know, the mainstream regular traditional media was saying, yeah, let's look at this. This is interesting. There might be something here, but there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of it. And on the other side, it's, this is the most, this is the biggest issue ever. And it reminded me of a lot of calculations that are frequently made by the parties. The Monica Lewinsky case is the is one that comes to mind. And so I really was interested in kind of understanding it. And also I had a lot of listeners on my radio show who were like calling in about it and saying, tell me about this. And so I kind of read really read up on a lot of it, where the book that was described by the president in that clip by Miranda Devine called The Laptop from Hell, looked at as many of the actual documents that were in the public domain that were on the laptop, took it, took it looked, looked at the arguments. Because I wanted to kind of understand what was, I guess trying to understand first if there was any there there. And also as someone who believes in the notion that somewhere in the middle lies the truth, I had a sneaking suspicion that turned out to be right, that there are elements of this thing that are legit, real, substantiated, and have concerns, or have for which there are plausible and reasonable concerns. And then an echo or a, a tangent or an offspring that comes of it, which go far beyond the pale. So let me just kind of refresh kind of the Hunter Biden allegations. I mean, I had how to do it. Like the four big tranches of what people say about the Hunter Biden laptop thing, and they were all reflected in that montage of sound. You know, one, that there was this cover-up by the media, a cover-up by the left-leaning media to keep the story out of the papers in October of 2000, uh, 2020. I keep thinking saying 16, 2020. And that's based on the idea that this story was dealt with with a lot of suspicion. Because for you who are uninitiated, this was a laptop that was discovered in October that was left at a shop with a computer repair guy who's legally blind, who after a year takes it and turns it over to Rudy Giuliani, 
on behalf of, you know, who is the lawyer for the president, who then only gives it to the New York Post. He won't let anyone else have access to it. And this was, remember, in 2016, there was Russian interference in our election. And that's not me saying it. That's the Donald Trump intelligence agency saying there was interference in 2018. And the way that they did it was kind of like leaking stuff into the media that was true and untrue by, you know, influencing social media and everything else. So this thing comes out of providence that no one really knows about. No one can take a look at it to actually say whether it's real or not. You just had to decide whether you were going to believe what the New York Post said about something that Rudy Giuliani said about something that this guy in Delaware said he had. And so the Twitter after allowing the New York Post story to be circulated, it says they can't circulate it anymore. Facebook starts to put a note on it and limiting how that story would appear. I think it was a mistake. And I've said that publicly. I've said it before. I think it was a mistake to take those steps. Maybe not. I guess the, the correct thing to do might have been to put some context around it. But I think Twitter went too far. And they eventually said themselves they, that they went too far. And by the way, the underpinning of this thing is a letter that 50-some-odd intelligence officers or former intelligence officers wrote a public letter about the Hunter Biden emails from October 19th. Remember, the election is four weeks away. And I just want to stress that really what the letter says is not this is BS, but after 2016, we now know how this information can influence our elections. Be careful. And this part... The people that talk about the cover-up and everything else don't point out. This is from the letter. We want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement. Just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case. They said, look, this has the earmarks of it. They were very clear of saying they don't know for sure. That letter did give context because it was at, that's right. This was October 9th. You know, basically, be careful, everybody. So the first thing is that this thing was covered up. And well, I think there was an overreaction on social media to it, the context is important. And I think ultimately this notion of cover up doesn't hold up. If you go, you can look for October articles in the New York Post, the New York Times, and every other major publication saying, here's what we know about the Hunter Biden laptop. But we are skeptical because we don't have it. And by the way, when Rudy Giuliani was asked to share it with other publications, he said no. So just as an idea of what, what we're dealing with. The second thing is that the son, Hunter Biden, with this laptop, had documentations of all kinds of deals in which that he was doing deals and without a shadow of a doubt by me based on my experience and looking at these documents, was trading on his name. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Some of those deals seemed shady. Some of them seemed slightly unsavory. And there, there might be actual real problems for him legally in these things because when you deal with foreign governments and foreign companies, you do have disclosures that you have to make. And I think that part of it, which is the part that many of the critics of the Hunter Biden laptop talk about in such profound detail, that part is right. Now, that requires context as well. I don't see these same people 
talking about the idea that Jared Kushner, the moment he left office, got a $2 billion, billion with a B, investment in his hedge fund from the Saudi government the minute he walks out the door, when even the vetting arms of the Saudi of, of the Saudi family said that he didn't think he was qualified to get that. And even today, Donald Trump, when he's announced a campaign for office, is doing deals with foreign governments. I mean, let's be consistent. And the idea that family members sometimes use the name to get ahead, that's not a newsflash. But there is no doubt on this one that, yes, there seem to be some unsavory things that were going on with Hunter Biden. Three is a big one, though. And that is, and this is where a lot of the thrust of today's investigations falls apart. And it's said that the president has either benefited or somehow been compromised by these relationships that his son had. And I just have to tell you, after going through all of this stuff, if there is evidence of that, it's not in the public domain yet. You heard a mention of this guy, Bobolinsky. And why is that name even relevant? Well, there was an email to Bobolinsky from a second party talking about a portion of a deal in a company that never got off the ground going to the big guy, 10%, I think it was, and CC'd on the email is Hunter Biden. It's not even from Hunter Biden. And when asked, when Bobolinsky was asked, who's the big guy? Well, he didn't need to be asked. He was shouting it from the rooftops. He says, Joe Biden is the big guy. So there it is. That's the smoking gun, a deal that never happened with a company that never got off the ground. A third, really a fourth party got an email referring to this. And so trying to figure out, since this is the only kind of real connection, except for some pictures, like a person that did a deal with Hunter Biden, is there a picture somewhere with that guy? I mean, that to me is is not evidence. But so this guy, Bob Alinsky, says, oh, wait a minute, I've got more than that email. I have text messages that I'm prepared to show people that shows that this is right. So the Wall Street Journal and Fox News both ask, and the FBI, apparently, both ask to interview Bob Alinsky. And Fox News looks at all this stuff. And in October of 2020, again, October 23rd, this is the headline of their story. Ex-Hunter Biden Associates records don't show proof of Biden business relationship amid unanswered questions. This is Fox News, not exactly Mother Jones News, not exactly a lefty organization. They said they'd seen this documentation and they believed it was BS. Wall Street Journal, same way. They did the same thing. And this is from the Fox News story. Bobolinsky provided text messages and emails related to his venture to the Wall Street Journal, mainly from the spring and summer, which don't show Hunter or James Biden discussing Joe Biden's purported role. Meaning, and also Fox News, and this is another clip from that story. Fox News has reviewed the emails from Bobolinsky related to the venture, and they don't show that the elder Biden had business dealings with Sinecoc Holdings. That's the company that was they were trying to put together that didn't wind up having any deals, or took any payments from them or the Chinese. So this smoking gun, unless there, then who knows, there might be more that comes from it. That's the entirety of the so-called link between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, except for some emails that go back and forth of Joe Biden saying, I'm with you, pal, you know, I'm praying for you. And some financial arrangements between the two of them, which were Hunter Biden taking care of an estate 
of expenses at a house or something that Joe Biden lived in, that they had this thing that, that Joe Biden would reimburse Hunter Biden. Also, there was some times where Hunter Biden was so deep in his addiction, I haven't mentioned this yet, he's like, he wrote this book about, and any of these, the pictures that came out, the unsavory pictures, the guy was in active addiction at the time. And there are some documents of Biden giving money to Hunter but as far as like Joe Biden is involved with the Chinese, Joe Biden is involved with the Ukrainians or the Russians, it's just not there. The fourth piece is the FBI has covered this up or DOJ has covered this up and they're not doing an investigation. Well, I don't know the status of that except to say that it's been a while. The U.S. attorney in Delaware is a Trump appointee who got this referral. They've got the laptop. They've got these, I'm sure it's a complicated case, but Joe Biden, to make sure that there was no appearance of any impropriety, left the U.S. attorney in Delaware in place. I guarantee you, Joe Biden, from being a lifelong senator from Delaware, I'm sure he has people he'd like to put in as U.S. attorneys there. It's not. It's a nice perk to give. And usually a new presidents come in and make those appointments. He has left the Delaware U.S. attorney in. The FBI has the laptop. I don't see, if you're going to do a cover-up, you replace the U.S. attorney. I think there is a very good chance that Hunter Biden is indicted for some of the things here. There's some, you know, might be tax issues, might be disclosure issues. But there's no, the only sign of cover-up is that it's taken a while. And if and since we've seen some investigations in the public of public people, like, you know, it's the same complaint about the Donald Trump investigations, that's taken a while too. I'm prepared to say I don't have any information that there's a cover-up. It doesn't look like it, but it has been a while. And so that's kind of the Hunter Biden case in a nutshell. Now, should this be the top issue coming out of Congress? We did a good portion of the show on Saturday about that. I go encourage you to go listen. It's episode 35 of The Middle, the radio show I do in 77 WABC. It seems to me that voters have not been clamoring for an investigation. There was a poll recently that said that something like 65% of Americans think that that should be investigated. So you basically say all the Republicans do and 15% of, you know, 20% of everyone else does. Maybe, maybe people want to investigate it. But I don't think it's something people are clamoring like the levels they are about inflation, immigration, and these other issues. But I'm still fascinated by it. I'm going to keep you posted about it. I think of all any, you know, anyone who thinks that I'm, I don't try to give the right their due. I've looked at this a lot. I really like the issue. Just it fascinates me, as I said at the top. And I'm going to keep following it. I think it's a crazy thing for the Republicans to obsess about right out of the box. But let's see if I'm right or I'm wrong about that. And we're going to see if Kevin McCarthy lets this type of investigation be the number one thing and doesn't have the strength to say to his caucus, we'll do it, but we won't do it the first week. And it probably says something about his ability to hold back the Freedom Caucus nut jobs that he has to now oversee. So that's that. When we come back, we will dip into the listener mailbag for the last segment of our show. So each week, you know, when you do a radio show, you their feedback is immediate. People call in. And when you do a podcast, they more indirect. People tweet, people send Facebook messages, and people send emails. If you'd like to participate and let me know of an idea for a show, or you'd like to give me some feedback on either the radio show or this this show. And by the way, the middle, the radio show, which is on every Saturday from two to three, is a separate podcast feed from this, the middle unplugged. So you've got to subscribe to both, or I would encourage you to subscribe to both. So the way to reach me is at Rep Wiener on Twitter, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. Facebook is Anthony D. Wiener. 
And our email address is wienerwabc at gmail.com. And this week we go to Wendy B, who is a regular caller. And, and before I tell you what she wrote, she's writing about the remarks that I made about Kanye West or Ye, Ye, Kanye. Should it be Ye or Ye? I'm not really sure. She actually, one of the things she said is I should call him Ye since that's what he goes by now. And I try to explain in my response to her that I call him Kanye West because I think more people who listen to WABC probably know that name. And Irving of the Nets, the anti-Semitism. And I kind of made the point that I didn't think that this reflected a rise in anti-Semitism. I think that it reflected just that there are more ways for this anti-Semitism to be in the public space. And also there is more permission for that anti-Semitism to be expressed. And I put these public figures expressing their anti-Semitism in that later category and also made the point that these people are in a commercial space. They want me to buy their music. They want me to attend their basketball games. And while they're free to think whatever they want and they're free to tweet whatever they want, this is America. Twitter has no obligation to carry their anti-Semitism, and I can respond to their anti-Semitism by just not buying their products. And that's where Wendy B's letter comes in. I'm not going to read all of it. It was a very long and thoughtful letter, but she basically suggests we need a more nuanced conversation about anti-Semitism and racism, like understanding where these messages are coming from. And just to, to excerpt a little bit of it, she writes, everyone keeps going down the same exact well-worn paths and strategies, and it's not working. We're not making any progress and you've quit, meaning me. You accept the reality at hand and say nothing we can do about it, but I disagree. And she goes on to basically make the argument that, you know, you've to kind of, I guess to paraphrase, elevate the conversation a little bit and to say, let's try to understand where these things come from and to kind of give them a full airing because that's the only way we really make progress. And while... I think I see that point, and I feel persuaded that that is right. The challenge is, by elevating something, do you give it more credibility than it deserves? Like, make it another one of these issues of the day that this side, that side, she said, is everything a yes, but what about her emails conversation? Or are there some subjects that it's just wrong? They are to be, the people that make them are to be either socially, publicly, or economically punished for holding them, and that no, no person who claims to be informed who is speaking in the public space should be rewarded for that. And it's a tough call because in these cases, these were two people who I don't think were making, I mean, you know, Irving, the basketball player, and Ye, the rap artist, neither one of them was making kind of a thoughtful, structured, you know, they're making these cliche tropes about Jews that I don't think even, you know, controlling the media, they're trying to keep us down, the, you know, stole our religion, whatever it is. But I do take the criticism that appearing to dismiss it maybe takes people who legitimately need some educating on the idea that they're, who believe that there is a group of Jewish guys meeting to get together to decide what's going to be on TV, you know, or something like that, or what basketball player is going to have a right to say what, or whatever. But I appreciate the feedback, I appreciate the criticism, and I appreciate the thoughtfulness with which you were sent. So that's our show for this week. As I said, download this podcast, subscribe to it, share it if you see fit. Tune into the radio show, which has a little bit of a different vibe. 
because we do have the back and forth with listeners. That's every Saturday from two to three. It's also available as a podcast. 77 WABC has an app, so you can listen to it anywhere around the globe or 77 WABCradio.com is the website. And as I said, I really appreciate you being along. And for those of you who listened to this before the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, I wish you a very peaceful and meaningful Thanksgiving holiday. And for those of you who listened to it after, I hope that every day you have a chance to show some gratitude for things in your life, big or small, for which you're grateful. I am very grateful for this opportunity to share my thoughts with you and for your support for the show. And this is the end of the middle, Unplugged.